0: It was a small church in a small community, but with people who loved God, followed Him, sought His face. Very typical small town church. But there got to be a conflict between two of the leaders, two of the men. And I'm not even sure they could tell you how it began. <laughs> But as this conflict began to escalate, there was conflict between their wives. People began to gather around each of them. The conflict began to escalate until finally one of the men said, I'm leaving, I'm going to go start another church. So in the small town, suddenly there were two churches of the same denomination, one at one end of town and one at the other end. You know, this is a sad story, and if it was rare, it would be sad, but maybe it wouldn't impact us that much. But the truth is this scenario is repeated daily. <laughs> In Christian churches, Bible studies, Christian organizations of all kinds, anywhere Christians spend time together, there's conflict. Including, unfortunately, here at Cole, we've had our conflict. People have left angry. Churches have been started. You see, we're not exempt. And if you want to avoid conflict, going to another church isn't going to solve that for you. (laughs) That's just the reality, folks. And unfortunately, the world is watching The world sees how we respond, how we treat one another. And sadly enough, and you've experienced conflict if you've been in the church any length of time, but here's a statement by the Jewish philosopher Spinoza who wrote in the 17th century. And he wrote this. I've often wondered that persons who make boast of professing the Christian religion, namely love, joy, peace, temperance, and charity to all men, should quarrel with such rancorous animosity. You've experienced some rancorous animosity all that at times. And display daily towards one another such bitter hatred that this, rather than the virtues which they profess, is the readiest criteria of their faith. So someone outside the church looking in says, You know, they talk about love, but what's most obvious about them? It's their conflict. Their bitter animosity. They're splitting into churches and denominations and groups and groups and separating. This should not be. (laughs) Why can't we just get along? Isn't it what Jesus wants? Uh, He said... By this, all men will know that you're my disciples, John 13. By the love you have for one another. And yet too often that isn't the case. It isn't love we have for one another. It's quarreling and conflict. So what is the problem? I mean, we really need to face this, don't we? Every one of us. Because we all face conflict. It's a reality. What's the problem and how do we get beyond it? Well, that's our passage today in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. James was tired of seeing the conflict he was seeing in the early church. This isn't new, is it? (laughs) This was happening in his day. He was tired of it, and he decides to go straight to the heart and really point to what the issue is, what the problem is, and then how we can begin to get beyond it, how to change. So this is a message James is needed to say to his day, and it's a message we need to hear in our day as well, because we all face conflicts. So let's dig in together in James chapter 4. He begins, first of all, with a diagnosis. He wants to point out exactly what the problem is. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? And let me stop there just to say, the words he uses there are warfare language. These words, fights and quarrels, are usually used in actually conflict between nations. Fights is the word for wars. What causes wars? These long, drawn-out affairs where there's many battles and much difficulty, where we get entrenched in our positions and we're constantly trying to take turf from one another. And then he uses the word battles, which talks about the one-time skirmish. You know, the skirmishes we have where there's conflict and maybe we go our own way and don't have it for a while and then we come back and have another. So he uses warfare language here to help us point out, help us understand, I guess, the seriousness of our quarreling with one another. How we battle to gain ground, to win, to get our way on everything from the color of the carpet to theological issues and everything in between. So what is the problem? Is it... lack of communication. You know, if we talked about it, if we had a discussion, you might say, well, the reason we have conflicts in the church is because we just miscommunicate a lot and if we could just sit down and talk, we could work it through. If we could just read the right book, maybe that would solve it. Maybe it's theological differences and that's the real bottom line problem. Maybe... It's our backgrounds, and we just have come from from such diverse backgrounds that we just can't see eye to eye. You know, we could throw out a lot of ideas. But James goes straight to the heart and listen to what he says. Don't they come, your fights and quarrels, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? He points not out there, to the problem or some kind of communication problem or whatever. He says, it's in you. If you have conflict with somebody, it's in you. It's in you. And he says the problem within you is your desires, or probably a better translation is pleasures that wage war within you, that are battling for control, that want to be on the throne of your life. This word for pleasure is the Greek word hedona, where we get our word hedonism. And hedonism is a philosophy of life that says pleasure is most important. Pleasure is what you should live for. Pleasure should be what governs your choices. It is the highest good in your life. In a word, selfishness. (laughs) We want what we want when we want it. And when we don't get our way, we get frustrated, we get upset. This whole hedonistic attitude, I want what I want when I want it, I want pleasure, I want to feel good, permeates our culture. We can't get away from it, and we are products of our culture. So there's this overwhelming sense in our world that you should live for pleasure, and if you have pain or struggle or suffering, something is terribly wrong, You should not have those things, and you need to get rid of them as quickly as possible. See, that's part of the mentality of a hedonistic culture. So we have this driven into us by our culture. Materialism, I need more things. Humanism, I need to run my own life. The advertisements on TV, magazines, wherever, that say... You deserve it. You should feel better. This will make you happy. This will fulfill you. All of those things in our culture are driving into us this attitude. Gee, I should have pleasure all the time. I should never struggle. I should live by what I call the unholy trinity. (laughs) My needs, my wants, my feelings. Those are what tend to be on the throne of our lives too often. My needs, my wants, my feelings are what's most important, so I need to be taken care of first. That's what our culture has driven into us, but unfortunately this has infiltrated the church as well, because we're products of our culture, as I said. The church of James's day and our church today as well. Our lives. We struggle with this because we start to believe what the world is telling us. Twenty years ago, J.I. Packer wrote a book called Hot Tub Religion. It's just as applicable today as it was 20 years ago. But his thesis is something's permeated. The the sense of hedonism, of pleasure has permeated the church so that we tend to want a religion that makes us feel good. And so what defines whether we like a church or not is how it makes us feel. or how well it meets our needs or our wants. You see how hedonism has crept into our thinking? And so we define a church by that and that's what we look for in a church rather than other questions like, is this where God's called me? Is this a place I can serve? Is this a place where I can really grow even though it may be uncomfortable at times? You know, those are questions that I think God would have us ask, but... The world is telling us, go somewhere that it's comfortable. That's hot tub religion, hot tub, where you sink into it and all the pain kind of goes away and it's warm and comfortable. And he says, that's the kind of religion we tend to want. I want to read a little bit from it because I think he has such a good point. He says, Hollywood and TV have projected a fairy tale view of life in which pleasure is the crock of gold that you always find at the end of the rainbow provided that your previous behavior hasn't been too utterly outrageous. (laughs) And then he lists a number of symptoms. Listen to these carefully. Symptoms of hot tub religion today include a skyrocketing divorce and remarriage rate among Christians. I'm hurting in this marriage. I need to feel better so I can get out of it. Widespread indulgence of sexual aberrations. Sex feels good, therefore I deserve to feel good. Hedonism. An overheated supernaturalism that seeks signs, wonders, visions, prophecies, and miracles. Because those feel good, we look for something that's supernatural. Constant soothing syrup from electronic preachers in the liberal pulpit. Anti intellectual sentimentalism and emotional highs deliberately cultivated. The Christian equivalent of cannabis and cocoa. In other words, marijuana and cocaine. You see, we want to feel good. We want an experience. And when we make that central to what our faith is all about, we're living for pleasure and an easy, thoughtless acceptance of luxury in everyday living. These are not healthy trends in the church. They make the church look like the world, driven by the same unreasoning desire for pleasure, seasoned with magic. You know, in the church we throw in a little magic, a little supernatural, but we tend to look like the world around us because we're pursuing pleasure at the same clip, the same pace. So James really points to the fact that pleasure is the problem. But let me say something very clearly here. I, I want us to have a good understanding Of pleasure and a good theology. (laughs) Pleasure is good. Pleasure is created by God. He made our bodies to be sensual, to enjoy pleasure, to recoil from pain. God actually created sex, (laughs) He did. And He made it pleasurable because He wanted us to experience great pleasure in the right context. You see, God created pleasure. He designed the world to be pleasurable. He wants us to experience pleasure. The problem becomes when pleasure takes the place of God, when we decide, I must feel good at all costs. Then our lives become consumed with seeking pleasure, and this world is painful often and difficult And so we become more and more demanding and more and more frustrated when we don't get our way. So James says, this is what happens. You lust. In the New American Standard, in this translation, you want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you can't have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You don't have because you don't ask God. And when you do ask, you don't get it because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you want on your pleasures. You see, pleasure is something that's a gift from God, but it's meant to be a byproduct of walking with Him, of trusting Him. And in fact, when you're walking with Him and your relationship is right with Him, then suddenly you find pleasure in all kinds of things. The world becomes a, just a beautiful place because you see God's hand at work, even in the midst of the pain and the struggle. And you find the simple joys of life. But when you begin pursuing pleasure, what happens is, all of a sudden you become more and more demanding. Pleasure becomes so important that you become addicted to pleasure, to finding something that will make you feel good. And that's really where addictions come from. And all of us struggle with some sense of addiction because, as humans, that's part of our fallenness. So... We feel pain. We go to something that makes us feel good. Now, it may be something socially acceptable or it may be not. It may be something like food. I feel bad. Food makes me feel good. And it becomes an addictive tendency for us. It may be sex because it's so pleasurable. It may be relationships. It may be TV. It may be romance novels. It may be fantasy. We may even become addicted, get this, to Bible study. (laughs) Honestly, anything can be an addiction if it's something you go to when you're in pain to avoid the pain rather than resting in God in the midst of the pain. So that's what happens. And as a result, James says, they wage war in us. Pleasure becomes the king and... Because I want pleasure and you're standing in my way of getting what I want, then I'd get angry at you. I'd become enraged at you. And he says, we end up in murder. Now, you may sit up there and say, I've never murdered anyone. Well, Remember, Jesus said, if you even become angry at someone, it's the same as murder. And James may be thinking, too, of how many people in the Old Testament murdered because they didn't get their way. Cain was envious of his brother Abel, so he murdered him. David wanted Bathsheba, so he murdered Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba's husband, because he wanted her for himself. And he says, then what happens? We, we harm others. We become envious. We quarrel and fight because we're not getting our way because pleasure is the king. And then we come to God and either we don't come to God. He says, you don't even ask of God or you ask of God and you don't get it. Because you ask with wrong motives. Now, maybe your prayer life has gone like mine. When I was you know, a newer believer, we were supposed to pray, right? So I would pray and I'd ask God to fix this or do that or help this person with their health or help me with my health or provide this for me. And as I look back, so many of my requests, not all of them, but so many of them were because I wanted to feel good. My needs, my wants my feelings and God didn't answer them. And I got really frustrated and I thought prayer doesn't work. Well, James is telling us why sometimes prayer gets so frustrating for us because we're asking for the wrong things with the wrong motives. Instead of wanting to know God better and build his kingdom and help others grow in him, we, we want to just feel better and God doesn't answer those prayers. So the problem is with our prayers and our motives, not, With God, and as I've looked at my own life, you know, and I think about conflicts I've had, or over and over again conflicts Jeannie and I have had. Something will happen. I'll get irritated. I'll get frustrated. I'll get kind of angry at her. And if I really look at it, and that's what's so pointed about this passage, I realize it's because I want what I want when I want it, and. She's not fulfilling my needs like I want her to. Imagine that. Didn't she know what she'd signed up for when we got married? (laughs) And so our conflicts, even in our marriage relationships with our kids, when we experience quarrels and fighting, it always, James says, goes back to our own putting pleasure above God. Always. Always. But now he goes even deeper. His diagnosis, he wants to go a little even more pointed. He says, yeah, the problem is you're putting pleasure on the throne instead of God. The problem is pleasure, but the problem is spiritual adultery, ultimately. It's you've replaced God, who should be first in your life, with pleasure. So he puts it on our relationship with God. He puts it on that level in verse 4 through 6. He says... You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Now let me stop there. Imagine being in a Bible study with James. He'd be a tough guy to have, wouldn't he? (laughs) Because he's so direct, but he's so right. He goes on to say, Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely, but he gives us more grace? That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You see, what James is saying is that when we give our lives to the Lord, he wants our allegiance totally. But when we put pleasure first and say, well God, you know, I want you in my life as long as you're contributing to helping me feel good. <laughs> but ultimately pleasure's first. He says that's that's adultery. That's putting something in the place of God. And as you well know and I've seen it many, many times in a marriage, when your spouse chooses to put someone else or something else Above you, it can't work. You see, the marriage, you're supposed to be exclusively committed to that one person and nothing should be, get in the way of that relationship. God needs to be obviously first, but that person needs to be first in your life next to God. And when anyone else gets in the way of that relationship, it is adultery. Or if your job gets in the place of that, above your commitment to your spouse. Well, he's saying that's exactly the way God feels. He's a jealous lover. The spirit in us, he envies that. See, he longs for a committed, close relationship with us. And when we put anything else, especially pleasure first, it's spiritual adultery. It affects our relationship with God. And we, James says, which is very convicting, become enemies of God at that point because we've put something else above him. So James, again, is being very pointed. Any conflict you have with your spouse, in the church, with another Christian, etc., is always because we put pleasure ahead of God. And therefore, ultimately, we become unfaithful to him. James leaves room for no other explanation. That's it. He said that's the bottom line. If there's conflict, that's why. It's our selfishness. It's replacing God with something else. And so God, in his love, as a committed lover, frustrates that. If you try to put pleasure first, you will be frustrated because God is opposed to the proud. James says it very clearly. And in the context, who are the proud? The proud are those who say, God, I don't really think you know what's best for me. I think I know what's best for me. If you're not going to give me what I want, I will pursue it. Oh, I'll keep you over here on the side and still keep a little religion, you know, so I'm not going to dump you completely, but I'm going to pursue life on my terms. Isn't that pride? That's the essence of pride and arrogance. And God is, is opposed to us when we live that way. And let's be honest, we're all selfish, we all seek that. Because that's, that's at the essence of sin. Ever since Adam and Eve. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden? What a beautiful picture. God said, you know what? This one tree will do you great harm. You will die if you eat the fruit of this one tree. But you know what? I've given you all the other trees of the garden. This beautiful place, the Garden of Eden. Fantastic place. Talk about pleasure. And I'll walk with you in the garden. It'll be fabulous. You'll get to enjoy fabulous things. And Satan came and said, you know what? That tree, it's good. (laughs) The other stuff isn't that good. You know, God's holding out on you. And if you could just eat of that tree, you'd really have life. God said you'd die. He's lying. If you really want to have life, eat of the tree. That's the essence of sin. God, I really can't trust you, so I'll go my own way. And they ate. Did they die? Not immediately, but they died spiritually. They were separated from God and they eventually died physically as well. God was absolutely right. He offered them pleasure, but they chose what they thought he was holding out on them with. And that's the essence of pride. That's the essence of what we fall into as well. God, I don't know if I can really trust you to do what's best for me because when I follow you, life sometimes is really hard. So maybe I need to take it back in my own hands. That's pride. That's the essence of why we struggle so much in our relationship with God. That's foundational. So how do we change? How do we change? become different. How do we begin to live differently so that pleasure doesn't be such a harsh, controlling taskmaster? James tells us the path to peace. He gives us his doctor's advice, his prescription, how to deal with this diagnosis he's given us in verses 6 through 10. And he begins, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What we need is grace. What we need is to receive from God the fullness of what He wants to offer us in, in our relationship with Him. But He says, here's what you need to receive it. Humility. He gives it to the humble freely. Okay, so how do we get humble? Well, He tells us. There's three steps to humility He gives us in these next verses. First one, come. Come to God. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Submit to him. Come and say, Okay, Lord, I've been seeking the wrong thing. I I come. I, I want to come to your presence. I'm going to draw near to you. But he says as part of that, what you have to do is resist the devil. You see, it's the devil who plants lies in our thinking all the time, who continues to say, you can't trust God. You know, you're hurting right now. You deserve to feel better for a little while. So give in to your addiction. Find some way to feel better. Just take a few drinks. Just indulge in the internet pornography. Just escape for a while. Find some place to just feel better because God's holding out on you. You need to do that. You see, Satan tempts us with those thoughts. I used to think those thoughts were part of me, and then I'd feel guilty and horrible. And but you know what? They're part of part of Satan and his temptations of us. They're not really us. We're new creations in Christ. And when you realize that, as James does, he just says, "Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you." When you hear those thoughts, you need, you can't trust God. You got to do your own thing. You got to feel better now. To just say, "Wait a minute, that's a lie." Lord, I need your strength. I can walk through this with you. Help me to trust you. I don't have to believe the liar. Get away from me, Satan. And it says very clearly, resist him and he'll run because he has no real power over us. So part of coming to God is, is rejecting those thoughts that Satan throws at us. I don't need to believe that. And coming to God and saying, okay, I'm here. First, come. Secondly, second step to humility. Confess. Verse eight, wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double minded. I think he's just saying confess. Just come and say Yeah, I'm a sinner. I'm double minded. Sometimes I want pleasure more than you, God, and I'm sorry. I want to wash my hands of that. Cleanse me, Lord. One of the most beautiful passages in Scripture is Psalm fifty one, where David has sinned. And he's come to God and he says, wash me, cleanse me, make me new. It's a beautiful passage. So if you all at, want to really understand what he's talking about here, what James is getting at, read Psalm 51. So confess. And then third, grieve. Come, confess, and grieve. Notice these commandments in verse 9. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, I asked Adrienne if she could find a song from that verse that we could sing. You know, there aren't any. (laughs) But it's a command of Scripture. Grieve, mourn, turn your laughter to gloom. What's he getting at? I think he's saying face the reality of what pursuing pleasure does. It does harm to other people. It does harm in your relationship with God. So turn from pursuing pleasure to just face the reality of the harm that your sin has done. And if we do that, that's repentance. To come, to confess, to grieve, that's repentance. And notice how he ends the passage here in this verse, verse 10, this section. Humble yourselves before the Lord. I think that's a summary of all he's been saying. And he will lift you up. In other words, if you do this, if you truly repent, God will bless you. He'll exalt you in his time. He'll give you pleasure beyond your imagination. To some degree here, but just a taste. But someday he'll exalt you. He'll lift you up. What he's really talking us, asking us to do is simply follow in the steps of Jesus, huh? Who is willing to follow God no matter what. And in the end, the Father exalted him. That's what he's calling us to do. That's where life is. He says, humble yourself and you will be exalted. Now, all this is great. It's hard. We need to submit to the Father, but this is the way to deal with conflict. But if we're really honest, what we tend to think about with conflict is, okay, well, so what if I do all this? What if I really humble myself and I really put God on the throne, get pleasure off the throne, and I really want to follow you, God? If I have conflict, the real problem, God, is them. (laughs) They're the problem. Who's going to make them be humble? Show me the steps to make them humble if you want me to get along with them. Well, James points to that very attitude right now in this last couple of verses where he says this. Brothers, don't slander one another. Don't literally speak against one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy, God himself. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? So he points to that very attitude. What about them? Look what he did to me. He's the problem. She's the problem. They're the problem. And he says, and literally it's don't go on speaking against them. Stop doing what you're already doing. (laughs) He assumes we're already speaking against those other people that are a pain to us. And he says, just stop it. Stop it. Because actually, when you're critical of other people, yeah, but look what he did to me. Yeah, but... And you're speaking against them either in your heart or verbally to other people. He says, really what you're doing is you're putting yourself above the law. You make yourself the law giver and you usurp God's place. God's the only one who has the right to judge them. Leave them in God's hands. He'll deal with them. He'll humble them. He knows how to do it far better than you could. So go back to your own heart, make sure your own heart is right, and as far as it depends on you, reach out to them and love them and care for them. Don't speak against your brother or sister. Now, let me just say this. The Bible does tell us that if you see a brother or sister caught in sin, that we are to go to them and seek to restore them. Matthew 18, verse 15 through 20. But notice, you're not speaking against them. You're going to them and seeking to restore them to the Lord and to the fellowship, the community. That's very different than what James is talking about here. There is a place for that. But what he's talking about here is our tendency to be critical of people because they don't do what we want or they hurt us or we want to point out all their sins and what they're doing wrong because we're angry at them, etc. He says, don't do it because actually you're standing in the very place of God. And who are you? Who am I to be critical of our brother or sister, to judge them? Well, once again, James deals with very relevant topics, doesn't he? (laughs) We all have conflict, and I think it's a powerful passage that reminds us that the reason we have conflict is because of our own selfishness. We want to feel good, we want pleasure. And he points to that and says, The real problem is your relationship with God. Are you willing to submit to him, repent, and let him exalt you and give you pleasure in his timing, in his well, in his according to his will. Again, he wants us to be like Jesus, to follow him. Remember, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was about to go to the cross and he said, If there's any way you could take this from me, I I want pleasure. I don't want to suffer. I don't want to go to the cross. He's not asking us to pursue suffering. But Jesus noticed the bottom line with Jesus. He said, but not my will, but yours be done. And that's really what God's asking us to ask about every situation. Lord, I want to feel good, but not my will, but yours be done. I'm willing to follow you even if there's pain involved, God, because I know you love me and you have a bigger plan. Therefore, I will trust you rather than myself. I will trust you even if it hurts. That's what God asks. The little church I was describing as we began this morning. Several years later, there were two new pastors who'd shown up in this church, in these two churches at the opposite ends of town. And they decided, let's get some of the leadership together and let's just talk about whether we could cooperate, whether we might even rejoin as churches. But as they met, they had some meetings. I talked to one of the pastors and he said, you know, it was not going well. There was still conflict. It was a problem. And he said, I had no hope that this was going to happen. And then he said, one day they were in a meeting and they took a break and... The two key men that had started this whole thing went outside. And he said he saw them through the window and they were talking. And then he said he saw a miracle happen. He saw them embrace one another. And he said, all of a sudden I realized God was doing something here to bring life. Well, they began to talk. They decided to combine and create, recreate one church. They sold the two church buildings, built a new church building right in the middle (laughs) between the two. And several years later, I had the privilege of pastoring in that church. Now, it wasn't a perfect church. Still people, (laughs) still conflict. But let me tell you a couple things about that. There was just an aura of forgiveness and acceptance and life in the midst of the messiness of that church. And that church is an incredible testimony to the non-Christians there because they saw a miracle happen. They saw two people that were fighting come together and two bodies that were in conflict come together to form one new church. Simply because two men were willing to humble themselves before God. You see, if we're willing to do that, God can do miracles. If you and I are willing to humble ourselves before God, let go of our demand that life go well, and that people cater to us, God can do miracles.